Okay, I think uh, we'll get started. And um, I'll start with just with a short little review about what we talked about yesterday and then open it up for some questions or comments. And yesterday I spoke about the five factors of endeavoring and it starts with faith. So this idea of like wanting to apply oneself, wanting to engage with the practice, wanting to, I don't know, work towards uh, anything. It here is being applied to one's spiritual path and towards awakening, but it would be towards anything. The Buddha teaches these five factors, and I translated them as confidence, vitality, integrity, energy, and wisdom. And maybe I'll just highlight, I mentioned this at the end yesterday, but there's a reason why they're in this order too. It starts with confidence. We might use the word faith. It's the same word in Pali, sada or sada. And the faith kind of like moves through vitality, integrity, energy, and comes to wisdom. And whenever we see faith in a list, it's always the first one first element in the list, and wisdom is always the last element in the list. And for me, I think this is noteworthy. This practice isn't only about faith, but faith is an integral part. And maybe we could say the faith kind of shifts and changes towards some wisdom, something that maybe we believed that then there's a certain way of knowing, I'm using those words kind of uh, loosely. So I spoke about the five factors of endeavoring, and Ying spoke about Faith being the starting point of the liberative dependent arising. Some of you are aware of this. This is a, these steps that actually start with suffering and then go to faith. And then through faith kind of like moves through what we kind of sometimes call the gladness penitent, but goes all the way towards awakening. Where it starts with faith that comes out of suffering, comes out of some difficulty. And then Ying provided this uh, beautiful simile of just in the same way that water starts at the top of the mountain and trickles down into pools and rivulets and rivers before it gets to the ocean. In the same way, starting with faith, it can just naturally, just naturally go downhill towards more and more ease and awakening. And part of this pathway of going from faith towards liberation is this gladness pentan. Different translators translate it a little bit differently. Um, I often say gladness, joy, tranquility, happiness, and concentration. But sometimes um, joy gets translated as um, rapture, and happiness gets translated as bliss. Same words in Pali. So with that as a short little introduction, We'd like to open it up. Are there any questions or comments about what we've talked about before? This whole idea of crafting one's path, you know, this way of um, including some of these heart elements, this faith, devotion, this heartfeltness, bringing all aspects of our lives to this practice. Sometimes we might think, like, I can go on and on, right? I can just uh, talk nonstop, but I'm waiting for somebody to raise their hand to see if there's something somebody wants to say. But maybe I'll just say, sometimes we feel like, okay, I'm not religious. I'm not a religious person, so I don't want to have anything to do with faith. And so we go all the way over to secular. I like the science that's supporting Buddhism and the practice. And what we're pointing to is a third way. 
bringing some of the heartfeltness, the faith, the devotion that uh, touches us, and not discarding the all the other ways that that um, the secularism kind of like points to, and instead like combining them to craft our path, find our way towards greater and greater freedom. Maybe I'll looking at my co-teachers here. Would either of you do you have something you'd like to add? Ying and Kim. I see that Catherine has her hand up. Oh, Catherine. <clears throat> Hi. <laughs> I don't know why, but I'm just moved to say that um I've been crafting my path for a while, you know, and it ebbs and flows. And I'm grateful for this three-day class. And I noticed that confidence, faith, and trust are all pretty much um, of a piece, different aspects of, of, yeah, of confidence and faith and trust in the path. And, you know, what's helped me um, recently is that you know, I've always had some sort of altar. And in the last five years, I've moved a couple of times. So that's changed a bit. It's undergone some changes. But I have this, um, I have this collage of all the teachers that I've had in my life. And I used to sort of hide it. <laughs> but now it's sort of out in the open on my bookcase. But one thing I wanted to mention was refuge, um, because that's part of your five, is it? Syria. Um, what I've done lately before I sit, just to help me with intention and, and everything and focus is to just take refuge. Just, you know, go to my altar, a little Buddha statue, um, and just think about the Buddha Dharma Sangha in my own way and what those things represent to me. And just, you know, I mean, I've I will, I've chanted it a few times, the refuges, but mostly it's just like a, a, a quick little contemplation of, of those things. And that helps me before I sit. Um, so I just wanted to offer that um, as something that works and uh, that helps. And anyway, I just really appreciate this. So. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add. I um, when I first uh, heard the, uh, the word refuge, uh, you know, being um, a non-native speaker, I couldn't have a sort of a connection with it. Um, uh, sort of doesn't have a sort of a heart connection with it. Um, but when I was reflecting about the Chinese translation. Uh, the word is return, uh, kind of, a, uh, uh, the Chinese word I used for this is this a sense of returning home. And that all of a sudden kind <laughs> of evoke a different sense. I was like, ah, okay. So we're coming home, <laughs> coming home to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. Um, and so this is where some of this language can have an effect on us and for us maybe playing with um, some of this, um, you know, felt sense in the heart, in the body, and uh, uh, 
in different ways, kind of uh, just noticing what is the effect uh, when this happens. See, Sochi had a hand up. Thank you. Um, yeah, I actually just wanted to add uh, when you're talking about language, Yang, I remember that I was having a problem with the language. English, I'm a native speaker, but it was just like I wasn't used to these words, you know, like refuge and some of the other stuff that comes up, like just all the things like when you're thinking about even self, not self, uh, understand that, you know, whatever. And um, yeah, when uh, I started, um, actually the teacher pointed out, well, so I use different words, you know, and I was kind of like, oh yeah, you know, because I remember it was in a enunciation class and I just couldn't click it. It sounded like, what? You know? But it was like, if we use different words, as long as it's the same intention in your job, and it did, it does work, you know, to just, and I was thinking about it in uh, terms of the crafting our own path. For me, that has to be part of my, oh, remember to make sure that the language, that you aren't struggling with the language or that something isn't holding you back just because of a, you know, the way the, the word is spoken or something, you know, and kind of like, oh, yeah, I have to be kind of like intentionally looking. Oh, yeah, that's kind of like bothering my mind for some reason. And let me just switch it around. And, and it is helpful, you know, even something that seems small, but, you know, that's all I was thinking. Thank you, Sochi. And Debbie, I see that you raised your hand, but can we, uh, we're in a, just a little bit, we're going to have another Q&A period. So we'll uh, call on you then. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. And so for now, I'll turn it over to Kim. Thank you. Great. It's nice to hear uh, people have a few things to say. And because I, first of all, lets us know what is uh, landing for you in this. But also, um, I noticed that this topic in particular might be something that's a little bit intimate or personal. And so sometimes, you know, we don't want to say something necessarily, but each thing that's said, I think is probably resonating for everyone. So thank you for starting to share a bit about this topic. So I want to offer um, a few words. Um, in the first class, David gave a very nice image of the qualities of craft being a constellation confidence, refuge, aspiration, faith, and trust. He called them a constellation. I, I really liked that. Um, they're all possible lights for our path, and we can notice maybe which ones are twinkling the most for us right now. And it might also be that we gradually come to include the whole constellation, even if we start with just one star, as we start to see different aspects of these. So today we're moving more fully into the notion of finding our own way. So I love that the way the comments are starting to address that. Uh, there's a feedback loop through Dharma practice in which practice clarifies and even cleanses our mind, we could say, which then enables us to understand practice more deeply, which can then further clarify our mind and brighten our mind. It goes on like that, step by step. This is one way to frame it. So it's natural then that there will be shifts and changes in ourselves, our aims, our perspectives, as we continue to meditate and live our life. And it's important also that we respond to those changes so that we move along. 
Uh, if we don't, we might get stuck in a fixed idea of how to meditate or how to see things, or we might not update our motivation appropriately. Um, when I started meditating, I had chronic pain that was fairly limiting. And much of why I was meditating was to find some way to manage this pain. I don't know how conscious of that was, and I didn't have a clear plan about that. But looking back, um, definitely at the time, somehow meditating was the only thing that made sense to me. Um, but then as I engaged with the practice, I was also listening to Dharma talks. I was going to IMC. I was meeting a few Dharma friends and I gradually gained a larger perspective. And I realized, wow, there's a whole spiritual practice going on here. Um, so I got interested in the Dharma and in Buddhism and in trying new things like day longs and then residential retreats. I began to read the suttas. And at some point, I realized that I was not just meditating because I had some personal dukkha from my body pain. I had opened to something much larger. And uh, maybe importantly for what I'm going to follow with, this larger perspective included some positive qualities that I was cultivating and moving toward, not only a way to manage dukkha or get away from what was painful, and so at some point we're moving toward, not only away. And that's more the side that we're emphasizing in this class. Um, I think it's pretty common that after some time practicing, we realize we have changed or our relationship to practice has changed. And several of you have already named this in the comments that you've offered, which is great. So the hope is that our relationship deepens and broadens and clarifies. So today I want to share mostly from one sutta, from Majjhima Nikaya 7, MN7. Uh, it's called the simile of the cloth. And what I'm going to share is not the only Dharma teaching that's there in the sutta, but I'm going to use this text to show how a person's practice can evolve through a number of stages. And it just happens to include many of the topics that we've covered so far in the course. That's why I particularly liked this one. And this text will be in your handout, which is coming just after. Um, so the sutta starts with an image of a cloth, which represents the mind. And if the cloth is dirty and stained, it says that it won't take the dye evenly. You can understand that if you try to dye a cloth that's dirty and stained, it will look splotchy and not very beautiful. And in the same way, uh, it says that a mind with a lot of hindrances and unwholesome qualities will tend to be unhappy. Um, that's the, uh, the analogy made. And then, you know, and conversely, a clean cloth will take dye evenly. It will look beautiful. And in the same way, if we have wholesome qualities in our mind, it will easily move toward happiness. It will easily absorb the beautiful parts of the path and continue to irradiate them. And so then the sutta goes into a description of a process. And the Buddha names 16 imperfections of the mind, as he calls them. And those are like the stains on the cloth. And I'll, I'll read them because it's an interesting list. Um, so here are the 16. Covetousness and unrighteous greed, ill will, anger, resentment, contempt, insolence, envy, avarice, deceit, fraud, 
obstinacy, rivalry, conceit, arrogance, vanity, and negligence. Wow. (laughs) So it's one of the longer lists of problems. Uh, So the practitioner first has to realize that these qualities are problematic. Until we see that something is unwholesome or not serving us well, we are unlikely to change it, right? It's amazing how we will sometimes defend some of these qualities as important or necessary. Probably the most common one in the list that gets defended is anger. I need my anger. Why wouldn't I be angry? But once we see that these are not helpful, then there can be a movement toward abandoning them, letting them go in some way so that we aren't caught in them. Um, When I came to practice, I knew that I was suffering from my own reactivity to physical pain. I had a lot of aversion, but I had finally realized that this aversion was making things worse. And as Yang pointed out on Thursday, many people arrive in practice from some state of suffering, ill will, grief, confusion, fear. The list is long. Uh, Some even come because they know they're conceited or lazy, but often these ones that are less directly painful get, get worked on later. But one way or another, practice often begins by trying to abandon something difficult in the mind, trying to get away from some dukkha. The sutta says, though, that when we see that something has been abandoned, even partially, even temporarily, it doesn't say we've completely eliminated, then confidence is born. We have actually seen the benefit in our own mind and life. So we don't just have faith in a kind of theoretical sense. We have experiential confidence. So this is from the sutta. When a practitioner has known that covetousness and unrighteous greed, just the first thing in the list, is an imperfection of the mind and has abandoned it, they acquire unwavering confidence in the Buddha and other things. So the word that's used there is avecha pasada, which is translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi as unwavering confidence. And this is different from the quality of sata, which is normally translated as faith. So in MN7, the person gains a vecha pasada in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. That's what the text goes on to say. So we could, translating into modern language, we could say, hey, this stuff works. <laughs> hey, it works. And I, I certainly had a sense of that in my own practice. So it then goes on uh, to, to kind of turn toward what this confidence evokes in the person. And the person has some understanding and some praise of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And the language it uses is exactly the same as in the recollection practices that David mentioned on Tuesday. I don't expect you to remember those, but um, that's from uh, AN 1112. And there are standard phrases that a person realizes about each of these three refuges. So, for example, for the Dharma, it says, the Dharma is well-proclaimed by the Blessed One, visible here and now immediate, inviting inspection, onward leading, to be experienced individually by the wise. So it's kind of a, you know, an understanding, a connection, a a coming home to these three qualities. And if we meditate on these phrases of praise, the mind will become happy, tranquil, and concentrated. In fact, MN7 uses the same gladness pentad that Ying talked about and that Diana just reminded us of. 
gladness, joy, tranquility, happiness, and concentration. It uses those exact five. And it says a person will gain inspiration in the meaning, gain inspiration in the Dhamma, and gain gladness in connection with the Dhamma. So let's step back for a moment and see what has happened here. First, there's a reckoning with the problematic imperfections of the mind. Then a practicing to abandon them. And there are many, many practices in Buddhism. Then realizing that they're partially abandoned. We've gotten the upper hand a little bit. We've seen them end or we've seen through them or we've become mindful of them. And then there's a feeling of uplift, confidence and refuge that ushers in some very beautiful states like happiness and peace. So the question is, have you felt something like this in your own practice? Sometimes we are so programmed to look for problems and try to get rid of them that we just rush on to the next imperfection, not stopping to notice how wonderful it feels to be on the path. Oh, right. It works. <laughs> Things are happening. Things are shifting for me. Maybe we don't appreciate how some small fruits of practice are beginning to appear. And if we do notice and appreciate that, we can allow that appreciation to grow and take root. Crafting our path includes turning toward whatever benefits we've experienced and really letting them register. So the sutta goes on then. Once the person opens to the happiness of confirmed confidence, they go on to cultivate what? The four Brahma Viharas, the heart qualities of goodwill, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. Um, so here's the language. I'll just read it for goodwill. They abide pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with goodwill, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above, below, around, and everywhere, and to all as to themselves. They abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with goodwill, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. And the same for compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. So you might have heard that as a chant, by the way, those words from the suttas are pulled right out and chanted every day at monasteries often. So the mind is getting more and more cleansed with the cloth, right? There isn't so much of a sense that we're dealing with our imperfections, but more like developing and resting in what is beautiful in the heart and trusting that that in itself is furthering the path. All of the qualities of craft are hard qualities, and it's natural that they would lead to strengthening love and compassion. So again, you might check to the degree to which this is happening on your path. We need to keep stepping forward into the new things that are becoming possible and available to us because of practice. Even if we've only abandoned a little bit of imperfection in the mind, there is definitely a little bit of expanded heart quality available, and it's worth nurturing that. And just for completeness, I'll say that this is not a totally linear process. Um, new layers of imperfections can suddenly appear such that our mind feels like it's become more problematic than it used to before because we've opened up some new space that we haven't really worked on before. But then, you know, it's the same process. We begin to do practices to abandon those things and we'll see the same good effects. 
Um, so then, as it moves on, um, the person's mind is ready to take the die evenly, and it has a deep insight, which I won't go into in detail, but I want to read it. The practitioner understands thus, there is this, there is the inferior, there is the superior, and beyond that, there is an escape from this whole field of perception. So, like I said, we won't go into detail, but the commentaries give an interpretation of these lines in terms of the Four Noble Truths. But in light of our theme of craft, maybe I'll point out, I'll point us toward the deep trust and confidence that it takes at the end to let the mind expand out beyond what we already know. Maybe even beyond anything we could know. So to summarize and conclude, there are ongoing shifts and changes in our mind as we walk the path with craft. This crafting new practices or teachers will call to us. Sometimes we find ourselves moving towards something unusual and unexpected, or other times we realize that something is done, some phase is over, we need to drop it. Doesn't mean it wasn't worthwhile while we did it, but we're on to something else. This is all part of the process. And all along the way, there's this increase in confidence that's gained from experience and stepping into the next phase. So we see our mind becoming lighter, more wholesome, clear. We can step forward with confidence and inspiration to enable the next phase. So I guess with that, we'll move on to the next phase of our class, which is for uh, Diana to lead us in guided meditation. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. And you laid out a beautiful way in which we can do a guided meditation, right? Just kind of laid out a path. Now we see in Majjama 7, assembly of the class, Matupama Sutta. Okay, so let's take a posture that feels comfortable, has some ease, as well as some alertness. And this alone can be a whole uh, practice. As much ease as your body allows at this time. As much ease as your mind allows at this time. And feeling into noticing the sensations of the chair or the cushion against the body, feeling the pressure. You're connected, grounded, here. Pressure against the buttocks, against the back if you're using a backrest back of the legs, feeling the groundedness, the feet, what are they touching? being supported and you're connected. We'll check in with other areas of the body, just noticing 
the belly, allowing the belly to soften, relax. chest. Maybe there's a way it can open just a tiny bit, moving the shoulders back just a little bit, maybe an imperceptible amount, but the chest feels a little bit more open, less guarded. And checking in with the face. We often hold tension around our eyes or our mouth. Allowing the face to relax and soften. And if there are areas of the body that don't have ease, can you be okay with that just for now? This is how it is right now. We don't need to add these extra thoughts or defilements disturbances. It's just how it is right now. Imperfections, that was the word I was looking for. Then allowing the awareness to rest on the sensations of breathing being sensitive to tuning into the experience of breathing. Feeling the body breathe. Allowing the mind to settle. When the thoughts arise, it doesn't have to be a problem. We just very simply, gently begin again.
in a relaxed, easy way, can we turn towards any sense of faith or confidence or trust that this is an okay direction to go, this settling, this softening, this quality of allowing what's here to be here And this recognition that this is a beautiful way to practice. We can trust this. Chances are there's a number of things happening in your experience right now. Can you orient towards, tune into this sense of confidence? This part of you that recognizes, yes, doesn't mean everything's perfect, doesn't mean it's exactly how you want it to be. This recognition, this is the direction to go. What would it be like to allow that sense of confidence, trust, faith to get as big as it would like to allow it to grow? We're not forcing it. We're not making it happen. We're allowing, opening As we feel some of the beauty of a mind that is settling, allowing this appreciation to grow. Maybe with each inhale, there's a little bit of a inflation, a little bit of this bubble of confidence, faith, trust, whichever word resonates for you. This bubble getting a little bit bigger in a relaxed, easy manner. 
what if this beautiful bubble gets bigger than the body? What if it starts to fill the room? We're just allowing it to get as big as it would like. What if it's as big as the whole building? neighborhood encountering others with their hearts their bodies with this beautiful bubble radiation it's born out of this trust Confidence. Gets transformed into goodwill as it meets other hearts and bodies. Sharing this beautiful space with others. And then coming back to feeling connected, grounded, whatever you're sitting on, feeling the pressure against the body, feeling the feet on the ground. And yet maybe there's still some openness, some spaciousness, some goodwill, Going to ring the bell in a just a moment here. Can we end the meditation with still this sense of beauty and bigness and sharing?
Thank you. Thank you for your practice. And I'll hand it off to Ying. Yeah, just let yourself linger in this vast and beautiful space um, that the Diana evoked. That maybe you feel a little bit of that energy uh, still in you or around you, the field that we're all in. And uh, the invitation is to offer some sharing, reflections, and questions. And, and allow that to be uh, something that arises out of uh, this vast space, a vast uh, energy. Um, and that was um, maybe palpable or have a hint of that's available to you. And I'm aware that Debbie had a hand up. No? Okay, so. <laughs> okay, so. And uh, whoever wanted to share and um, like to ask a question, uh, Zochin. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to make a short comment about, it's like I feel like I'm, my mind is always kind of like trying to tell me to think about a situation and it isn't until I'm able to just like drop into my body and my mind you know it almost like takes like it starts the meditation and there goes my commenting about it you know and it's like but every time I'm able to really just like drop into my body and let my body inform the situation it's like a completely different experience. You know, with this meditation, it was just like so nice to be, have all this agitation going on. And then just for a few minutes, I was able to stop it and just feel this, you know, beautiful, like calmness. <laughs> it was just like oh. nice. So, oh, yeah. I don't have to believe everything that's going on up here. There's something else also going on. Yeah, Thank yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And that's the discovery. That's a part of the crafting our path to discover <clears throat> the <clears throat> bigger dimensionality of being human that have other ways of knowing and sensing and uh, being alive that is uh, not always only dependent on our thinking mind. <laughs> so, and knowing the joy of uh, this possibility, uh, not to make our uh, thinking mind a problem, but knowing that uh, there are more to our lives um, that is uh, maybe bigger than our thoughts. And then the, our body and heart has a way to inform us, as you were saying. And then the, the, when we kind of um, become attuned with that, and there are also different ways of um, uh, 
if different we begin to open to a different way of a being uh, in this world, living in this world. Yeah. I'm sorry. Can I add also? Yeah. Um, that um, as you were speaking, it was like yeah, an alternate way of like sometimes when you have all this agitation or something going on, it's like you have your go tos. You know, like oh, I'll go to distraction. Well, maybe I'll purchase something. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll you know. But it, and then it was just like, and then like a beautiful reminder. Hey, and you can do this yeah. because this works really well too. <laughs> Great, great, wonderful. Uh, Julianne. Yeah, I just, I wanted to ask a question about, um, I've, I've had really uh, some pretty severe negative experiences with faith. And um, so one of the things that I really <clears throat> love about this path is um, and also I have a science background is that it's endless experiments. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, you know, being able to, you know, explore things, you know, and, and note the, um, you know, you know, and what happens. And I find it just, you know, delightful on so many levels. And so the, the whole faith aspect of it is just kind of difficult for me, like to, mm. To just, um, I just have an aversion to having just, you know, blind faith. And I, and I, and, you know, I, I, I had the experience of, of, you know, you know, recognizing progression and mm -hmm. recognizing, um, you know, the, the joy that comes from that and all of that, but I don't, I wouldn't call it faith, you know, yeah. I, you know what I mean? And so yeah. I don't know. I wondered if you had any comments on it. Yeah, yeah. It uh, uh, sounds to me your English unfolding already. Maybe the, the word doesn't really gel and you can just let it go. Let, let, you know, but you have this, you have enough um, something in you that um, kind of moves you to explore to play, you know, to experiment, as you were saying, that's the, the energetic aspect that the Diana was pointing out uh, in her talk, and that you're already in this flow. And then uh, you mentioned about uh, the joy and happiness that Eve uh, kind of um, uh, flows out of it. And so I would just trust that rather than the word itself. <laughs> so, um, trusting a certain flow that keep you exploring, exploring a dimension that leads to more and more a sense of a well-being. Yeah. Great. Maybe, maybe can I just add? Yes, a please. Thing there. So, right. I'm a PhD scientist too, right? So I'm right, I'm right in there with this idea. I love what you said about just all these experiments. And for me, I initially thought like, okay, I have this hypothesis that this is going to, you know, have this particular outcome. And so I'm going to, uh, you know, do this experiment. And that's kind of like a hypothesis. I thought like, oh, this is kind of like faith. I have this confidence or, but let me check it out. Let me see for myself if this is really going to work. And I love this about this practice. There's a 
real encouragement to check it out yourself. So I, I'm on board with the, this whole idea of a whole bunch of experiments. So thank you, Jillian. <laughs> yep. Uh, so wonderful. I, I love this sense of uh, playfulness with this path. Kind of a lot of this, we have to kind of, you know, be a little bumply ourselves <laughs> and to play with things. And so I see Joy has a hand up. If it's a short one, we can go. Otherwise, we have another period of Q&A. Uh, what do you think? Um, well, I have a really hard time uh, staying still. And <laughs> so I turned my camera off because I found out that doing the Zoom um, and trying to sit, like I just keep thinking about that I can be seen and that you know, everything's happening, but this time I turned my camera off and something about the guided meditation this time where there was like, um, like prompts on focusing on my body and this bubble idea was really helpful. And I just wanted to sort of like, also like echo the point that Sochi made about like feeling like it's it, it just takes me a long time to actually get into the place of, of um, like stillness. And so I'm glad that it, it happened this time, uh, mm -hmm. especially with the like body awareness kind of stuff and um, feeling like the, the sense of urgency for other things are less and less as like the prompts followed by like a little bit of silence and then the next little prompt. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad the guided meditation offered some help. Yeah. Thank you for that. And the Marilyn will come back to you. And right now we'll turn to a second teaching, um, but we'll call you uh, in just a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And David. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, friends. Um, yeah. So, um, the idea for this final teaching is in a way to um, bridge a little bit the, the conceptual, the theoretical, and maybe the more abstract uh, of our approach to this with, with sort of a very practical, maybe looking forward to what might we do in this coming year. Part of our design for this class was to do it early in this new year as people sort of as you know, is probably uh, depending on, of course, where we think the new year begins in our particular cultural background, you know, that idea of um, looking forward, maybe making, if not resolutions, some sort of um, devoting some intention, uh, maybe bringing some greater intentionality to our practice. So um, let me do a little bit of each of these. And on the kind of abstract and theoretical side, I've got a couple thoughts and then practical side as well. And I'm going to ask my teachers to chime in uh, where uh, on both of these, probably um, certainly on the practical, but, and I love this conversation um, around science. Um, each of the four of us actually has a PhD <laughs> <laughs> and uh, mine's in the humanities, so or social sciences, but not not science like the others. Um, and nonetheless, I think I think part of what maybe draws a lot of us here is uh, you know a, a well founded skepticism that comes you know from other aspects of our lives and that has been very useful to us. And uh, I think this is a path of practice that, in a way, 
I don't know that it actively encourages skepticism, it may, but it certainly supports it. Uh, and it allows us to, each of us, to craft our own path. That's a big part, actually, of what brings us here. Why we share this is this idea that we make the path our own. It's This is very different than making up any old thing and calling it a path, but making the path our own. So that, for example, just in the in this acronym, we're presenting in a way five, um, not synonyms, but in a way, different words that capture a part of what this this aspect of our practice is about. And we use the one word sada to sort of say that it can have these different um, colors, vertientes, uh, uh, what's the word I want? Um, <laughs> um, valences, flavors. I use valence for my for my physical science PhD colleagues. Um, so I think, I think one thing that, um, that where the skepticism kind of comes true for me, uh, in particular, but I think for all who practice to some extent is around what we take refuge in, in, in a, because in part we take refuge in absences. And I'll just mention two. One is, um, the absence of a sense of, um, a sense of self in things. We, uh, we, we sort of, um, start, begin to have confidence in a way in that we can be comfortable without having confidence in some of the most things that we, fundamental things that we take for granted. And this turns up over and over again in the suttas. And one that I, I think I made mention of the other day, but I'll return to Samyutta Nikaya 2243. Um, the Buddha is quoted as saying, Sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress are given up when one understands the impermanence of form. It's perishing, it's fading away, it's cessation. And one sees truly with right understanding that all form, uh, whether past or present, is impermanent, is unsatisfactory, is perishable. And when these things are given up, there's no anxiety. Without anxiety, one lives happily. And a practitioner who lives happily is said to be uh, extinguished or free in this respect. And somehow casting ourselves into this void, <laughs> casting ourselves into this uh, meeting experience without imposing order, without imposing permanence on it, is freeing. And perhaps the thing that we... Um, <clears throat> that we come to accept as being most um, vulnerable in our experience is this notion of self. We come to understand that it too is impermanent, that it's unsatisfactory, that it actually clinging to it too tightly. It has its uses, but clinging to it too tightly is in fact suffering. Certainly maybe is a cause of suffering, but maybe in itself, just that holding on to self <clears throat> is suffering. So this is a, a kind of holding this off to the end so that hopefully people are a little bit more comfortable with these teachings. But the idea that we, um, that the thing that we're coming to have confidence in is, um, is a way of letting go of views, letting go of confidence in any particular view or attachment to any particular view and letting go of um, a sense of fear around the impermanence that 
surrounds us, that's in us, and letting go of a sense of uh, a tight kind of constrictive sense of self and of potential, who we might be, for example, in, in 2024. So um, let me just pass on to uh, having said that a little bit. I, I like, by the way, a simple way to capture what I'm trying to say that I think of, and I think is quite useful, even in a, in a regular sitting practice, but also in daily life practice, bringing our practice into the world, bringing the world into our practice, is that one of the main things we cultivate, one of the main things that we come to trust or have confidence or that gives us faith or we find as a refuge is that we get more comfortable with our fundamental discomforts. We become more comfortable even with our existential discomfort about what it means to be here in this particular body and mind. So I like this becoming more comfortable with the inevitable discomfort that is part of life in this realm. So how might we take that into 2024? Um, And this is where I'm going to ask my colleagues to help me out because I already sort of talked about some things the other day, creating an altar, um, thinking about ways to actively take refuge, not just once to become a Buddhist, if that's part of our idea of how we're a Buddhist, or if we don't think of ourselves as Buddhists, you know, how we still can take refuge in the meditation practice, refuge in the teachings, um, refuge uh, in one another's company, right? As we walk the path or as we live the practice. Um, so I talked the other day about some things that I find really valuable, but I'd be curious to hear my colleagues um my colleagues' thoughts. One thing I didn't mention the other day is bowing. And uh, throughout Buddhist cultures, Buddhist traditions, Buddhist lineages, schools, there are cultures of bowing. And uh, one of the things I've noticed about my practice is I'm driving down the road. Say some of you, not all of you, but many of you either live in the Bay Area or are familiar with the Bay Area. And you may be aware, you may not, that in the environs of IMC, within about two or three miles, as you pass between, I may get this wrong, but I think it's probably um, the Woodside Road exit and what would it be like uh, Britain, maybe. There's a Buddha by the side of the freeway. He goes by really quickly uh, if you're passing south. And he uh, he's on a, a special dais, special um, structure that if you look at it from the side, it actually houses trash cans and dumpsters. <laughs> Very fitting. But um, I find when I drive by this now, I, less frequently because I've moved away from the area, but I grew up there. I, I I can't help but usually if I'm driving and I need one hand, putting my hand over my chest or bowing. Um, and the bowing in the practice can become, I find this whenever, not just that Buddha, but I pass any Buddha and I, I bow. And um Somehow, I couldn't explain exactly why that happens, but I think that's something that is worth noticing in your practice. Where do you feel devotion arising? It doesn't have to take a particular form or be a particular way, but I think it will be a natural part of practice as practice deepens, that you find that this urge to make special of the experience of being in the practice uh, starts to emerge for you. So each of my colleagues has, you know, a rich experience of this of their own. And I want to ask you each to chime in if you could, since I think I've talked about my experience there uh, a bit. 
already. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, David. And um, maybe I'll say a few words um, that in this uh, sense of um, sada or faith, trust, confidence in relationship to communities. And so often we can have a sense that somehow this is something, uh, you know, I got to have, you know, I have a trust and confidence in something. And yes, it's true. And it's definitely so. And, and also, um, there is a collective faith, trust and confidence. Sometimes you can say we're borrowing the faith and trust of our friends, Dharma friends and, and uh, Dharma teachers. Uh, who uh, kind of expresses their trust and confidence and faith in Buddha or Dharma. And so how many times uh, um, I've known for myself on retreat when they're so difficult. And like, I am ready to get out. <laughs> I don't want to be here anymore. But then that's because of the field that I'm in, that I see people showing up. You know, hour after an hour, day after day. I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay here. <laughs> and um, so this faith and trust, uh, there is an individual dimension of it. And that there is also a collective. When we are here uh, together exploring this, we are infusing faith and trust in each other. And collectively. And so each of us can continue to craft this path and that is unique to this system and yet has a collective sense uh, in the broader dimension. So that's what's came up for me. And, and you know, based on what David said about selfing and, and the refugees. Yeah. Thank you, Ying. I, I feel like what I'm seeing might follow on from that, um, which is that sometimes that a word like craft um, can sound active, and it is. We have to step forward. We've been emphasizing that today, doing things, actions that we take. Um, but in the very first class, uh, when Diana was laying out what we wanted to offer um, she pointed out that the word craft could sound a little bit like engineering to some degree. So I think I'm going to highlight in my few words the receptive side of craft and the sense that um, we don't need to figure out what we have faith in and then project that. Um, it's actually somehow just having this um, sense of aspiration, trust, flow of the path makes us uh, receptive for things to make impressions on us that we wouldn't have otherwise. Um, I remember a couple of things. I remember one time I was sitting in retreat. I was very quietly just minding my business, cultivating receptive mindfulness. And it was a retreat where it was a long one. And only near the end, Joseph Goldstein was going to come and teach. And he came into the Dharma Hall. So I was already very settled. He came into the Dharma Hall for the first time and was going to be there for some time. And it was so interesting, like my body uh, straightened up <laughs> and I felt this sense because I really admired him as a teacher. And, um, 
I felt this sense of confidence arise. It wasn't really in him per se, but somehow like what he represented or his, you know, his openness, his connection to the Dharma, I could feel that. And I don't think if I'd had an idea of I'm here and now Joseph is arriving, I don't know if that could have arisen, my body just kind of straightening up. And I, I recognize, oh, this is faith arising. So there was that. Another time on retreat, I um, walked into the Dharma hall. Again, I had just been doing my practice and the, the sunlight was falling on the altar in just a certain way. And it was just lit up. And something in me just responded. I was like, oh, that looks so beautiful. And I sat down and um, a whole bunch of wholesome factors arose in succession in my mind. And I kind of watched them come and go. And I thought, oh, there's, I, I really got a picture at that moment of what was evolving in my practice that I wasn't even aware of. And probably that wouldn't have come into consciousness again if I hadn't had that receptive stance. So some of what we're cultivating with this is just making ourselves available. That's what I'll share. Maybe I'll just add very briefly, I might have been at that retreat with you, Kim, too, with uh, Joseph. <laughs> but um, it might have been in this particular retreat. It was the first time when I heard like a whole number of uh, voices coming together to chant. Like some of these retreats might have a hundred people and I never heard a hundred people chanting, which is different than singing because I cannot sing, but I can chant. And I don't know, there's something beautiful, just beautiful about all these voices joining in this way. So I don't know, that's really touched me deeply. So, and maybe I'll pass it on to Ying because uh, probably the four of us could just go on and on here, but <laughs> <laughs> Yes, <laughs> this is our collective that's functioning here. <laughs> so we will shift gear uh, to allow you to share a little bit in your small groups. Now that we kind of almost like modeled <laughs> a little bit of how we might share amongst the four of us. Um, and uh, the prompt is... Um, now that you've heard all these different teachings and some of the practices that we offered, um, what might be one thing that you learned about crafting the path and that um, is new, that you had, hadn't really thought about before or it didn't occur to you that would be an aspect of crafting the path? And how might this uh, inform you moving forward, this new understanding or new discovery or new aspect uh, that came forth in this last few days. And so that's the, that's the prompt. And uh, you'll be in small groups and you will have um, uh, three or four of you together. And I would uh, uh, suggest that maybe Whoever is the first will get a chance to uh, pick the next person to go and then so on, so forth. The second one will get the chance to pick the next person. <laughs> so, um, and so, you know, maybe the first one uh, takes a little uh, different energy <laughs> to come forth, but I trust it will happen. And uh, again, uh, while doing this, 
maybe refrain from giving advices, um, but really uh, taking in this receptiveness that um, Kim was mentioning, receiving what's shared as a gift uh, some uh, others are offering. And so let yourself be nourished in that sharing. And um, so um, if, okay, Diana is ready. <clears throat> Welcome back, everyone. Yeah, going to wait a couple more seconds. I think we have a couple people still chatting out in the hall. Come back in. Oh, maybe that's us. Okay. Yeah. So before we close, we'd love to hear a little bit about what you, what what came up in the breakout rooms. And uh, by way of either of things that were surprising in, we, we really hope there were some surprises, part of our intent. And, um, and also anything, any reflections on sort of how this, how you might take some of the things that came up in this, in these three days forward into 2024. So yeah, Marilyn. Oh, uh, unmute. We'll give you a second to unmute there. There you go. Thank you. Um, uh, well, I I guess I'm just kind of reiterating in a different way a lot of what I've heard here. Um, I, um, I, I guess the one thing that um, keeps me with an intention to focus <laughs> is that we talk about confidence and um, the thing that has really reassured me and encouraged me um, to develop a practice or to craft a practice is that the way that the practice itself has confidence in me that in all of us, you know, but I mean, for me personally to say, Oh, you're a human being. And you have these, you have these abilities and these capacities. You're facing and experiencing human experiences, and there's confidence that you, that I am able to find a path, find a way, a better way to live, um, and that this is what all of these teachings. And all of the elements and the, the refuges keep reminding me that this is something that is available to me. And, and the fact that it's, um, I mean, there's certain specific practices and certain specific teachings, um, and, and components, but within each one of them, there's so, there's the freedom to explore. There's the freedom to curiosity is uh, there is is allowed is accepted. Um, so to me, it's just been like what the phrase is the onward leading yeah. aspect of the practice. So I'm very grateful that we have these tools that we're able to connect in this way using the uh, technology because. 
I don't have a lot available to me in my immediate vicinity. <laughs> so uh, okay. it's, um, you know, really wonderful that these practices are made available. And uh, I am deeply grateful for well, being able to do these studies. So thank you. Thank you, Marilyn, for everything you share. And I could see Diana and Ying uh, nodding at the same time. This is such a generous practice and generous teachings. And there is great confidence in us as lay practitioners, most of us. Um, the Buddha says again and again, as quoted as saying in the suttas, that if this freedom about which I'm speaking weren't possible, I wouldn't teach it. And the implication is that it can be taught, it can be acquired, it can become part of our lives. So I love that idea. It's a wonderful note to sort of begin to close on that the teaching that practice has confidence in us to find freedom. Thank you for that. Olga. Good morning. Morning. Um, I just, one of the things I talked about in the group, which I don't feel was we really addressed. And I think, it, I think it's important having, having been, a practitioner for a couple of decades is the inevitable arising of doubt and the faith and, and the role of faith in relationship, you know, sada in relationship to doubt. Yeah. Because I think if you practice for a long time, <laughs> it's inevitable, you know, that yeah. doubt is going to arise that, and, and, and knowing and knowing that and and being able to pair the doubt with the yeah with the faith is an important um understanding i think to have um and i guess i i i i, I just feel like addressing doubt is an important yeah. is an important aspect of crafting faith. Absolutely. And I appreciate that. And uh, we're so close to the end of the hour. I, I'm going to keep a comment short, but before passing it to Diana, but yeah, it, you know, doubt arises in practice and this is a way, uh, you know, we have multiple ways to meet that and hold that. But I, I love your idea that we, we, we take that as being part of practice. We don't try to squeeze it out or extinguish uh, <clears throat> exclude it from experience. You know, that too is part of experience and, and uh, we, we meet it as we, as we can. So we're right at the top of the hour, Diana and Ying, on to you. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'll just say one thing about doubt. For me, when I have doubt, it means I don't have faith. I can't quite meet them. So instead I meet doubt with investigation. What is it really that I have doubt about? I get some clarification about, and this might be worth a whole nother class that the four of us might do, like how to meet with doubt, how to work with that or something like that. But right now I want to kind of like touch into kind of like the beauty that we've touched into with this class. I'm not going to say it's all beautiful. I'm just going to ask us to orient that way and to maybe this uh, desire that may, maybe others can find benefit with this too. And one way is to support the Sati Center so that they can continue to offer this class and to support the teachers. So uh, we get a lot of uh, questions about um, how you can support. So again, I'm going to just put in the chat box 
There's a, if you'd like to financially support Sati Center, you can do it this way. And then I'll turn it over to Ying. I just saw a, a chat message from Charles Lee. Thank you for <laughs> sharing some of the uh, references around to the, uh, the image that uh, David explained. Um, that the, the Buddha on the garbage can uh, the, uh, on top of the trash uh, in a Redwood City. And, um, and as we uh, close our um, three-day sessions together, let me just take a moment to, to feel the joy of exploring um, this rich Dharma topic together and touching any goodness that may arise out of our practicing and learning and sharing together. And this practice uh, that we're exploring, uh, like one of you shared, um, is, um, um, is a gesture of offering and a giving. And as opposed to a, a kind of a sense of grasping and taking as this is mine. And so in that spirit, and as we uh, touch in our goodness and the benefits that arose out of our practicing together, may it be shared uh, with this being that's sitting right here and right now, and may it be shared with the collective and uh, all of us. May it be shared with all beings everywhere. And may all beings entrust in the beauty and the profundity of Dharma. And may all beings be free. Thank you everyone for being here. And we will be sharing a, um, uh, we'll be sending out a closing email with various links <laughs> that we've been promising. And as a, a lookout for that. Uh, so you can unmute and say bye. Um, Take care, everybody. Thank you all thank very you much. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>